Hello and welcome to the Client Word Hambro's Wealth Chat. My name is Fahad Kamal and I'm the Chief Investment Officer at Kleinwood Hambros. And today we have Greg Davies, an expert in behavioral finance. He is as eminent as they come. He has a PhD from Cambridge. He teaches at Oxford and Imperial. He has worked at Luminary Banks, unfortunately not at ours. And he is one of the preeminent scholars in this field of behavioral finance, which is critical to us at the end of the day, given that markets are populated with humans who have strange quirks. Welcome, Greg. How are you? Good morning. I'm, I'm very well. How are you? Very well, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. How was that intro? Was that all right? Uh, it was, it was uh, brilliant. If I... If- perhaps somewhat generous, I might say. No, 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 not at all, not at all. But Greg, so what is behavioral finance and why should we pay attention? Well, I really think of it as a mashup between classical finance theory and economics and psychology. Uh, It's trying to understand how people actually make financial decisions and where they might go wrong, rather than classical economic theory which is all predicated really around how people should make rational decisions. So economic theory goes, let's assume everyone's rational, and then we'll figure out what should follow from that. And why we should care is simply that humans do not make decisions in isolation. Every decision we make is made in the context of the environment we're in. And that context is influenced by what we see in the newspaper, by what's happening day to day, by our mood, by what's going on in our family. So we can't just assume that we are making cool, calm and calculated decisions at every moment. All of our decisions are influenced by our emotions, our personality, and therefore we might deviate from, in fact, we frequently do deviate from the decisions that you might think are economically rational or economically prudent. And understanding that helps us to then make better decisions as humans. So is that sort of something as simply uh, as, as sort of selling at the bottom, you know, when is, which is often the worst time, if you look at it mathematically? Uh, is it uh, doing things that feel good, but obviously are not as wise as, as, as one would imagine? I mean, is, is, it, is it that kind of thing in terms of our economic lives? Absolutely. This happens in, in, in many, many ways. Um, and selling at the bottom is, is a very good example. You could sort of think of this as every single financial decision that we make as individuals. There is a tension between the sensible thing to do for our long-term financial needs and the comfortable thing to do right now, the thing that feels emotionally comfortable to us. And particularly in investment decisions, these two things part company. The thing that feels emotionally comfortable to us in the moment is very seldom the same as the decision that is most suitable or appropriate or sensible for us to do in the long in the long term. So selling at the bottom, for example, we could go, well, that's it's it's irrational. Don't do it. Don't sell at the bottom of the market. And that would be the position of classical economics very often. I would say that actually there's nothing irrational about selling at the bottom of the market. Because if you have watched your portfolio drop 20%, if you are scared, you are frightened, you're worried that if it goes any further, that you are going to have to sell the house, sell the car, sell the kids, whatever it may be. That stress, that emotional anxiety is very real. It's very tangible. And selling at the bottom gives you something real in return. It gives you the sense of relief and the ability to get on with your life. 
So it's not irrational because we need emotional comfort in our lives if we're to survive. It's not irrational, but it's just phenomenally expensive because selling at the bottom, really what you do is you, you, you experience the gains all the way down, you sell out, you lock them in. And as humans, we cannot go from that moment of stress and anxiety back to enthusiasm and optimism. So what we then tend to do is to sit in cash for the next five or six years, not participating in the investment boom that follows. And it's, it's an incredibly costly way of buying emotional comfort. And what we need to ask is, are there cheaper ways? No, look, I, I, I would strongly recommend that anybody sell uh, their securities and their investments before they consider selling their kids. No, no doubt about <laughs> that. Um, much of what you're saying is is rather well known in the sense that you know we we know that we are we are humans. We know that we are inbuilt with biases, and we know that investment decisions are are often made in the in the heat of emotion. You know, and that kind of thing, which is which is often the worst time to make it yet why do we continue to do it why why um why do we not uh have inbuilt you know protections against our biases and that kind of thing uh, because in the moment our emotional brain is is wired to override other bits of our brain if you like and you know we can go back to the the example of in evolutionary times you know we were not long-term investors our job day to day was to survive until sunset and then again to survive until sunrise. And the fact that we responded emotionally and immediately to threats and things that we feared and things that were rustling in the bushes is a survival tactic. And it's very deeply hardwired into our brains that when the moment of stress and anxiety comes, the bit of our brain that wins in pretty much all decision making is the bit that's stressed and anxious. Now, we are human. We're not going to override that. It's, it's, it's deeply a part of who we are. Well, at least we're not going to override it in the moment. What we can do, however, because we are also rational beings, is we can take time ahead of times to start to put in place structures and rules and processes so that when that moment of stress and anxiety comes, we're actually in a position where we don't have to make a decision under stress from scratch in the heat of the moment when we're emotionally worked up because we've already thought about what a good or bad decision would look like and we can default to these rules that we have prepared earlier. So effectively what we need to do as humans is it's planning. We need to take time ahead of time to take decisions away from our future selves, our emotional selves, and give them to ourselves now when we have the time and the calm and the space to, to reflect and put in place decision structures that will help us. Greg, that is honestly a perfect segue to, to us, uh, you know, shining our own our own stall slightly here, which is that we at Climate Hambras, our investment process is exactly that. It is very quantitatively driven, meant to, as much as possible, reduce the bias in decision making, particularly at times of stress, because when things are easy, you know, decisions are obviously easy, yeah. But when things are very stressed, decisions are much harder. And, and to bring some color to that, during March of 2020, when we had the pandemic and global uh, markets were in free fall and the, the level of volatility that was on display was unprecedented, even higher than that, which we witnessed at the great financial crisis, you know, and, and you know, the S&P 500 and other equity markets were falling 10% a day. Um, I have to say that even as seasoned professionals, we were 
tested very deeply, you know, and saying, God, you know, look, forget our process, right? I just sell everything because, uh, because you know, the, the fear that you're saying and all of those generations, hundreds of generations of inbuilt uh, psychological cues that say, look, we just need to survive till the end of the day. You know, forget the long term, forget the process, forget that. Luckily, we didn't. So I just, you know, and, and of course, it turned out that you know, this year has been an incredible example of, of that, because obviously March turned out to, to also be the low. Uh, for the markets. And since then, there's been a massive rally. And had we had sold out, had we not followed our quantitative process, which was, by the way, telling us that, you know, look, things are very cheap all of a sudden and extremely oversold. But of course, in the heat of the moment, I completely understand why it's extremely difficult and why you have to have a process in advance. Yeah, and I I think there's a couple of things to say about that. One is this applies to professionals as much as it does to individual investors. And it applies in some different ways because professionals have more tools at their disposal and more data and, and, and hopefully more experience, but they're still human. And, you know, that survive to the end of the day thing still kicks in. And particularly in moments like March when there's a crisis and there's stress, well, humans tend to go one of two ways. You either curl up into the fetal position and roll around in a ball and you don't do anything and you try to block it all out and and go, I'm just going to ignore it and you do nothing. Or you go to the other extreme and you run around like a headless chicken. There's this action bias, this desperate tendency to want to do something in times of crisis because that gives you the illusion of control and that illusion of control gives you the emotional comfort that you crave so badly in in that time. And that, that, I think, is particularly true of investment professionals because they are involved in the market day to day. Acting is what they're paid to do. And in fact, that sort of bias is arguably even worse for investment professionals than non-investment professionals. And so you have to combat it more. The, the other thing there is these biases, many of them do go away with, do go away slightly with experience and education and training. So many of the investment mistakes that we observe in humans, we still observe in professionals, perhaps to slightly lesser degree. But in things like March, it is arguable that the investment professionals are more likely to exhibit these biases because the smarter you are, the more that you know about the markets, the more easy it is for you to rationalize why you are doing something different right now. So March happens, markets crash, We know that we should stay cool and calm, but our emotions say, I want to do something. And so our emotional self then harnesses in our logical self and goes, I want to do something. Can you make up a reason for why this is a good idea? And, you know, the more you know the markets, the easier it is for you to rationalize something that you want to do emotionally. Um, And that is why for investment professionals like yourselves, having a process that you've baked in ahead of time that you are forced to follow is a way of stopping yourself from overriding your own sensible thoughts in that time of crisis, because we are tempted to do it. Greg, I, I'm you know, just picking up on something you said there, which really struck a, a chord with me, which is that you mentioned that you know that obviously we are we are designed to act to a stimulus. And that stimulus can be something as as simple as, you know, turning on Bloomberg or CNBC and, you know, watching talking heads screaming at each other about what to do and, you know, what next, etc. And and that, that desire to act is extremely strong. 
Um, and oftentimes, actually, and especially if you look at the very long-term history of asset markets, to not have done anything is probably the wisest thing, to just stay invested in risk assets, stay uh, stay in rather than rather than sort of try to time the markets, which is which is impossible. It, it does resonate with with how we with how we try to manage our clients' assets, which is to be very quantitatively biased and to to be biased towards not acting as opposed to acting for any emotional reason, or at least acting date based on the data rather than any emotional uh, sort of decision, such as geopolitics of the day or 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 whatever you know Donald Trump's latest tweet as as you know emotional as, as that may be. But I guess my question is, when is the right time to act? Because of course, um, not acting, you know, can obviously get you eaten by a bear as well. So when, and I mean that pun intended for, for market followers, when is wise to act? When is it not? When do we know that we are being driven by irrational, emotional exuberance versus making sensible decisions? Yeah, I think if there was a, a clear and easy answer to that question, then um, our lives would be would be very different. Uh, and and there isn't. But I mean, that question is essentially at, at the nub of this. You, you build a plan, and your plan and reality start to divert. In the way the old military aphorism, "No plan survives first contact with the enemy." Um, you know, no no investment strategy survives first contact with reality. And we have to use that plan to quell our, our tendency to shoot from the hip. But we also have to be aware that that plan needs constant revision in the light of what we are learning. The important thing here is that any planning process isn't just building a set of rules to follow. It is also building a set of triggers and thresholds and processes for how you allow yourself to update those rules as time goes on. And an analogy here might be a, a political constitution. So as a, as a country, you might have a constitution, and that constitution is a set of rules that is there to govern your behavior as a collective in times of crisis and uncertainty so that you don't start exhibiting behaviors that are against your fundamental principles as a collective body. Now, the constitution can be changed, but the constitution should never, ever be changed to shove through a particular decision. So this is the nub of this here. If you are tempted to act in times of crisis, you should never ever transgress your rules in order to push through one action. What you need to do then is to step back into a slightly slower moving decision process and ask yourself the question, is this time sufficiently different to allow ourselves to change the rules? And you go through that slightly slower process. It puts a pause point on, it delays the decision-making process, it stops you from doing the immediate knee-jerk thing, but it still allows you to adapt to the changing environment and changing circumstances. So back to the, the political situation, a country can change its constitution, but it needs to do so not with a 50% majority, it needs to do so with a supermajority in two houses of parliament, because the rules need to change slightly more slowly than the than the day-to-day -day decision process. And so you, you can sort of think of these two-speed decision processes that are working in tandem. And that's the thing that allows you to prevent the emotionally driven knee-jerk reactions, but still respond to the environment. And it's not easy. This requires a lot of thoughtfulness and planning and, and, and structure. And very many of us get that wrong because we design a set of rules and then we stick with them so rigidly when the environment changes that we end up you know, getting 
eaten by the saber-toothed tiger or the bear or whatever it may be. Or we tear up the rule book the minute a crisis happens and we just default to the emotional thing. The answer has to be in the middle somewhere. And it takes work, it takes effort, it takes thinking. So the sort of discussions that in coming to your quantitative process, and I don't know the details of your quantitative process, but the discussions over a period of years of what are the rules that we follow in a crisis? What does the committee look like? What are the voting rules on that committee when we get to a crisis to decide whether or not we allow ourselves now to override these rules, etc.? All of that stuff takes a long time to build. And that's where the real value lies, is the, is the time and the preparation to build that decision structure ahead of time. No, that's that's really, honestly, music to our ears, because I think that we, we, we've tried to do exactly that. And in fact, we've tried to understand that behavioral biases obviously exist in the market and to try to to try to exploit them to our advantage and how how we do that the first step of our quantitative process takes into account market sentiment and we view market sentiment itself in a very quantitative way we try to see things like the uh, U.S. trade-weighted dollar, which tends to uh, go up when there's when there's more fear in the market, and which tends to fall when there's more exuberance. We look at things like future net speculative positions on treasuries and on equities, etc. Things that try to give you a sense, ultimately, of the level of fear versus the level of um, ebullience that exists any time. And and how the process works at the outset is that most of the time, as you'd imagine, we are in neutral territory. We're neither ebullient nor too fearful. But there are times at the extremes where we are one or the other. And when markets are too optimistic, we actually ratchet down the amount of risk that we want to take because those times are often when, you know, when you're most ripe to be, to be eaten by, by, by a tiger. And, and quite on the opposite side, when markets are too fearful, that's exactly when we want to take, um, to take more risk. You know, the, the famous uh, Warren Buffett adage that, um, that, you know, that we're greedy when markets are fearful and fearful when markets are greedy. So that's, that's what we try to do, which, which, is, which, is, which is great and sort of um, follows in. But I just want to touch on another point that you made about having quite a high threshold in order to change your constitution, two-thirds majority, etc., um, but but to have an ability to do so, which I think is 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 so critical, and which leads me, I suppose, to to the question of politics, where where we live in a world of populism. How do I put this delicately? Often it appears that some or many will make decisions that are antithetical to their own interests. For example, if you look at the US, you know, one could make an argument that the Republican Party generally favors lower taxes and therefore less transfer spending. And yet, many of the Republican Party's current supporters tend to be those who would most benefit from democratic policies. How do you explain that? I think a lot of this comes back to a similar point to what I was making earlier, is that there is this distinction between, uh, and I use the term, the sensible decision for your long-term financial needs and the emotionally comfortable decision right now. But stepping away from investing, there is always this tension between the thoughtful decision I would make if I was focused on the long-term and had no thought about what I need to accomplish in the next month or quarter or year, etc. And 
the decision that I make where I am focused on the shorter term. And in politics, as in everything, the the shorter term often tends to dominate our decision making. Now, this is you could have genuinely two different decisions, and one that would be the right thing to do for the next three months, if that's all I care about, and the other one would be the best thing to do for my my long term needs, if that's what I care about. And the problem here again is that, particularly in times of stress or crisis or populism or whatever. Our emotional time horizon, our, our decision-making time horizon shortens. And we tend to give precedence to the things that are going to be in our short-term emotionally driven interests, even if in doing so, that actually sets up problems for us in the future. You know, it might be in politics, but we also see this in, in savings behavior, for example. You know, if I've got a bill to pay by the end of the week, that is this week's problem, and I tunnel in on that problem. And I'm going to solve that problem this week at the cost of anything else. So I will go to the loan shark if I need to. And in solving today's problem, I've in fact set up next week's problem and the problem after that and the problem after that. And I think the similar thing is is true in politics is people are lurching often from one short term isolated problem to another. And in the process of solving, quote unquote, those problems, they're actually setting up a world of pain for us and everyone else in the future. And many of the big problems that we, that we face um, you know, collectively as humanity are things that really require us to find a way of turning off any consideration of short term. And I'm thinking about things here like you know, climate change or nuclear weapon predominance, etc. These are things that we have to avoid trying to solve the short-term three-month problem because we're going to make the longer problems worse every time along the way. Which which is interesting because, you know, exactly sort of to that point, you know, we, we elect our public officials for relatively finite periods of time, yet the problems, the big climate change problems are, you know, sort of they're not going to, I suppose, devour us in the next five years. It'll take 30, 40, 50 years. And therefore, it's in nobody's short-term interest to deal with it because it's obviously very costly to start to fix these huge long-term problems, um, which is honestly almost, does that does that almost give a uh, a bit of an impetus to a Chinese-style authoritarian, longer-term planning kind of, uh, political system? Well, I mean, you do see this argument made more and more frequently now. And I, I, of course, we have to have to make it with caution. Is it, is it the, um, the Churchill quote, you know, democracy is the worst possible politi- political system apart from all of the others that we've tried? Yeah. And, you know, the, you're right, there is something inherent in the process of democracy where people need to be voted back in every four or five years, that drives the entire system towards solving short-term problems, or indeed not even solving them, towards papering over short-term problems, that would seem to lend it an inability to tackle the big long-term problems. The question there is whether moving towards a more dictatorial Chinese-based system is a solution or just a bigger problem. And I, I think yeah, this this... This is well beyond my, um, my, my zone of expertise as a political scientist, which I'm not. But as a decision scientist, I, I think that there is genuinely a real deep tension here between the decisions we need to solve 
and the political structures that we have to deliver those those solutions. No, indeed. So, so coming back to to us, to, to decision making and, and behavior. Um, so, as I mentioned, our first part of our investment process is obviously trying to exploit behavior by the wider market to our advantage. A second part of our investment process is momentum. Essentially, once again, trying to take advantage of um, of uh, the behavior of herds, which is that oftentimes markets go up if they're in an uptrend and they continue to go up, sometimes without any fundamental reason. And the same thing happens on the downside where, you know, somebody starts selling and then, then somebody else starts selling and suddenly it becomes the, the sort of a fire, you know, the, the, the running people running out of a fire. And once again, without any fundamental basis. Now, uh, we once again recognize that this happens and try to take advantage of the trends, even if, you know, we're, we are sitting in markets that are potentially expensive or or somewhere not fundamentally as desirable. Um, do you can you sort of shed a, shed some light on sort of how how we behave in herds? Because that seems to be almost distinct from how we behave individually. Um, it is a bit, but I think it comes back to the same thing. Um, if we go back to this point that in the short term and particularly under stress, we reach for the thing that feels emotionally comfortable. Now, we used the example at the start of this about selling low, but there are many things that give us emotional comfort in the moment. One of them is familiarity. So in times of stress, people will stop diversifying as much. I'm not going to buy this sensible diversified basket of things because I don't know what those things are. Instead, I'm going to buy just the shares of the, the, the companies whose products I like. Or, or we, we tend to familiarity. And one of the other things that gives us comfort in times of stress is the fact that other people are doing the same thing as us. So the herd is a self-fulfilling prophecy. It's something as an individual, it is comforting for all of us to do what other people around us are doing. So we as individuals tend to reflect the herd position. We, we, we're more likely to go with the herd than not go with the herd. And that, of course, itself creates and generates the herd. So the herd is like all of these things, is an emergent property of lots of us acting as individuals. And that makes it very powerful. And that makes things like momentum effects have genuine value. It also, I think, puts them in the category of don't try this at home. Because trying to predict a herd is a very, very difficult thing to do. And a lot of the work that I do and the tools that we build at, at, at Oxford Risk are focused on individual investors, not on professional investors, helping them to understand their financial personality, helping them to make better decisions for their retirement and this sort of thing. And there I would almost universally say, yes, the herd effect exists, the momentum effect exists, but for your own investing, don't try to time it because it is extremely unpredictable and you could get badly burnt. And so there I would leave things like trying to take advantage of the herd, which is a perfectly reasonable thing to do, and take advantage of momentum to a well-constructed professional decision process of the experts, rather than say that this is something that an individual should try to pursue, because there you're really entering the world of the casino in a way that you need the quantitative techniques, you need the models, you need the data in order to have any chance of taking advantage in a sustainable and sensible way of that sort of herd behavior. But that, that, that effect is, is, uh, is extremely powerful, isn't it? I mean, that, that 
FOMO, uh, as, 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 the, as the kids are calling it these days, the fear of missing out, which, you know, in my generation was just called keeping up with the Joneses or something, I guess. But, but you know, that's th- extremely difficult to, to avoid in the sense that, you know, your neighbor has just made a killing on, you know, on opening a Robin Hood account and sort of riding, you know, hurts through, you know, up Any to... Bitcoin derivatives. Uh, exactly. And um, the lure of that is quite strong. And how does one protect against that, I, I guess? We all like the thought that um, that uh, we can make a killing for free. Some people you're not going to protect against that. I mean, some people are always going to be drawn to the you know the chance of the moonshot, the chance of the easy money, etc. But genuinely, unless you have the skill and expertise and models and thinking and processes, etc., to do that, it is effectively going to the casino. And I think that the way to overcome that, firstly, is a better self knowledge. So. You need to understand as an investor, as an individual, what are your tendencies and proclivities? Where do you tend to get emotional comfort from? Where are your biases tend to be? Um, And once you understand that, you can start to build your own set of rules to govern your decision making. And I think that the sensible thing to do, uh, you can imagine a a continuum of uh, how I control risk. From at the one end, there's this position that says, I acknowledge that I have no crystal ball. I have no idea what's going to go up and down in the future. I'm ignorant of what's going to happen in the future. But I do know that on balance over time, it is better to be invested rather than not not be invested. Because over time, putting your money for others to put to productive use in the capital, in, in, in in the economy, earns a return. So I need to be invested. So the sensible thing to do if you're ignorant of the future is you diversify completely. You buy a little bit of absolutely everything out there. The under end of this continuum is the one that is often... Also known as the ETF industry. Fine, but uh, I, I agree. And, you know, we can you know, argue and quibble about whether that's the best place to be. And indeed, one of the issues with the ETF industry is that because it's based on, on an index that is often market cap weighted, it is mm-hmm. not, you're not actually buying a little bit of everything. Often you're buying a little bit of yeah. the things that have been most successful in the recent past. But exactly. if you were genuinely ignorant, you would go, yeah. and if you had the instrument to do it, you would go, I just, I just buy a little bit of everything in the universe, and I don't have to worry about picking what's going to go up or down. At the other extreme, you go, well, this is often characterized as, as the Warren Buffett side. You go, well, I'm certainly not buying a bit of everything because some of it's not very good. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put a lot of work and effort and research and data, and I'm going to take this big universe of things I could buy, and I'm going to filter it down to the stuff that is better quality and higher quality. Now, both of those are perfectly reasonable ways to reduce risk. The question should be where on that continuum is the right place for you? And the problem with a lot of individual investors who are tempted to go and buy Bitcoin or go and trade themselves on on Robinhood or whatever it is, is they start at the Warren Buffett end and get burnt. And what I think we should every one of us do is we go, I'm going to start at the other end. I'm going to be, I'm going to, I'm going to close down all hubris. I'm going to be humble. I'm going to start with the assumption that I know nothing and I'm going to get my wealth into the market in a diversified way. And then I'm going to figure step by step how I can move towards the Warren Buffett side of the continuum. And these temptations that we have for sort of quick, easy money, nobody buys story. Nobody buys uh, risk return trade-offs. As humans, although in this industry, we love to think that if I show people 
a returns distribution and a standard deviation, and I throw lots of numbers of them at risk return trade-offs, that's gonna convince them to buy this investment. People do not buy numbers, they buy stories, they buy narratives. And the issue with the Robin Hoods and the Bitcoins, et cetera, is they very often have the most powerful story out there. So if you want to get people away from doing that, you have to give them a story that says, actually, that stuff's dangerous, and here is the engine room of your portfolio, is to do the three simple rules of investing. Put your wealth to work, diversify, leave it alone. If the vast majority of people did that, they would do much better than they're doing right now. I agree with you fully. And I guess, you know, just, just to sort of wrap it up, I mean, I think we've spent much of today here sort of discussing all of our foibles and weaknesses and biases and everywhere that we are, basically, where we fall short as humans. But what's the other end? So, I mean, would, do you think that it is, it's, it's wise to be, you know, 100% algorithmically driven, you know, f- feed in all the right rules into a computer and just let that, let that run? Or, or where can we actually add value as, as, as humans? I mean, surely we, we have empathy and other things that, that, yeah, that can't be programmed. So I, th- I think this is absolutely vital because it's, it's, where, it's where the future is going. And, you know, there's an illustration here that we might use an, an anecdote. So when um, in 1997, when Gary Kasparov, the chess grandmaster, chess, world chess champion for several, for a long time at that time, played IBM's Deep Blue. And still, and, and st- still a very uh, prominent political figure. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he's he, around. He's, he's in the US, but um, is, a, is a very prominent Russia watcher and voice of conscience, I think. Um, but, but he, so he, he lost to the, the best chess player in the world, human chess player in the world has just lost to a computer. So we think right now, henceforth, the best chess player in the world is a supercomputer. And it turned out for most of the intervening time since until very recently that that was not the case. 12 months later, Kasparov played an exhibition match with another grandmaster, a Bulgarian grandmaster. And there was one very crucial difference. It was not human playing human. Each of them played alongside a chess computer. So they could use this computer to check their answers, to to run some numbers, etc. And for most of the time between then and now, the best, the highest levels of chess that have been played in the world have been by these teams of man plus machine plays man plus machine. Because there is stuff the human does well, and there is stuff the machine does well. And it's not the same stuff because the machine can do the data crunching and, you know, running all, looking at all the moving parts and a whole huge database of prior things. But there are bits that the human does, the value, the empathy, the, the you know, the leaps of inspiration, et cetera, that add value to that. Now, that has stopped being the case in chess because uh, Alpha Zero came along and basically, you know, now the machines have won chess. <laughs> The crucial difference between chess and investing is chess is a fixed board with a fixed set of rules that don't change. And sooner or later, the machines are going to win that one. That is not true in investing. And it comes back to our our position earlier. The world changes. The rules change. The economic and political situation changes. And any set of plans and structures and process that you have need to adapt to the changing world that we see out there. And if we just hand over the keys to an algorithm, if the algorithm starts to see an anomaly and go, 
ah, I see that there's an investment opportunity there. And that anomaly is because something fundamental has changed in the underlying rules of the game. The machine isn't going to see that. What the machine is going to do is going to double down on that anomaly. It's going to leverage it up. It's going to place a huge bet on what it perceives to be a giant investment opportunity. And it's going to get burnt. It's going to get, it's going to get complete, completely toasted. We need this combination of the human ability to think out of the box, to embrace ambiguity, to transfer decision-making from one context to another, to learn from the past, to communicate, because the algorithms can do things that are extremely powerful and they can actually help humans be less emotional about doing this. But when I spoke earlier about you need to have a process for how you're going to change your rules as well as having the rules, that is where that value of, of the humans come in. And I think that the more we move towards a technology-based solution and the algorithms, actually the more powerful the human input that remains is going to be. And the answer is always going to be some sort of balance between the two, at least for the foreseeable future. Greg, that has been genuinely a wonderful, wonderful day. And it's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure. Most enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us once again today for our latest episode of The Wealth Chat. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Until next time, goodbye. This podcast is not a personal recommendation or investment advice. The value of investments can fall as well as rise, and past performance is not a guarantee of future performance. It is not intended that this podcast is distributed in or into the United States of America. This podcast is issued by the following companies in the Kleinwert Hambras Group. In the United Kingdom by SG Kleinwert Hambras Bank Limited, which is authorised by the Prudential Regulation Authority and regulated by the Financial Conduct Authority and the Prudential Regulation Authority. In the Channel Islands by SG Kleinwert Hambras Bank CI Limited, which is regulated by the Jersey Financial Services Commission. SG Kleinwert Hambras Bank CI Limited Guernsey Branch is also regulated by the Guernsey Financial Services Commission. Both entities are also authorised and regulated by the UK Financial Conduct Authority in respect of UK regulated mortgage business. In Gibraltar, SG Kleinwert Hambras Bank Gibraltar Limited is authorised and regulated by the Gibraltar Financial Services Commission.